Welcome to the 57th episode of Rising Tide, the Ocean Podcast. This is David Helvarg and my co-host from the Inland Ocean Coalition, Vicki Nichols-Goldstein. And hello, everyone. Today, it's great to be back in touch with Fabian Cousteau, who, along with founding his own Ocean Learning Center, launched the Proteus Ocean Group that we'll hear more about shortly. Fabian, like his world-famous grandfather, Jacques Cousteau, has spent much of his life on, in, and under the water. He's produced documentaries on sharks, including building his own shark called Troy. We'll hear about that sub. He's filmed a PBS series with his family and spent over a month underwater in Aquarius, the last of the ocean habitats, 50 years after his grandfather built the first. Now he's working on what he's calling the International Space Station for the Ocean. So lots to talk about. Uh, we usually start out by asking our guests about their original connection to the sea. I think yours is kind of unique. So uh, why don't you tell us about what you were up to at, say, age four? I wouldn't know what to do if we didn't have an ocean. <laughs> uh, great to be with you, Vicky and David. Uh, and great to be uh, amongst uh, your, your esteemed audience as well. And, and uh, looking forward to our discussion. What have I done? Jeez, uh, how did I get addicted to ocean? Uh, it's anyone who's peaked below the blue veneer uh, might identify with the fact that it's such a majestic, unique, amazing alien world, a fireworks display of life that it's uh, almost impossible to to ignore and, and to turn your back on once you once you get a taste of it. It's just an amazing place. And you got an early taste. I, I did. I, yes. You're doing it. Four years old in the ocean. Yeah. I did. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, as opposed to my father who did get thrown overboard uh, when he was seven, I actually saw one of our childhood friends or one of my family friends, father's friend, who was reading a newspaper at the bottom of the uh, the pool on my fourth birthday. And uh, so I went down there, a curious four-year-old, and he handed me some strange round thing that he put in my mouth. And we started uh, subsequently buddy breathing, sharing air together. And that got me really intrigued with the possibility of staying underwater without having to hold your breath. Subsequently, a couple of weeks past uh, that, I did my first open water dive in Catalina Island uh, in the Channel Islands off of California. And that was the the first ocean experience I had, and, and it's captivated me ever since. Now, let's just intervene here that for people with excitable five-year-olds, the recommended age for getting scuba certified 12. is 12 and older. Right. <laughs> Correct. Uh, I would not, uh, yes, it's completely, uh, it's not, uh, it, it's not good for, uh, for the child's growth <laughs> to be subjecting them to, uh, to um, the ocean as far as diving, scuba diving is concerned till they're, till they're 12. Actually, they can start learning the process with sassy systems and things like that uh, a little bit before. I think it's 10 years old. But. but your family was a little different, like your grandfather actually invented scuba gear. Hey, it was the 60s, man. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of flexibility in the 60s. Yeah, um, yeah. and this is so nice to see you. <laughs> the last time I saw you, you were in Colorado um, at yes. our Making Waves event. And uh, yes. it was really great having you there and getting all of the folks inland excited. Um, but you've been doing I a miss lot. that. I miss your 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 events. Uh, you know, Colorado is an amazing place for scuba divers. It's it's the mecca of scuba divers, believe it or not, in a landlocked state. 
you have the, one of the highest concentrations, if not the highest concentration of scuba divers in the United States. So we're a really amazing place. And uh, I miss, miss being there. <laughs> well, you are welcome to come back anytime, that's for sure. But tell us a little about your, your growing up. You, you got in the water very early. Um, you also got out, I guess you spent your summers on the Calypso, which was your grandfather's sort of platform for exploring and doing his documentaries. Um, did you grow up thinking you were going to just follow in this, this ocean path or what were your thoughts as a kid? My thoughts as a kid was I was a kid. Uh, you know, it, it, it was just a natural part of the background. You don't really necessarily uh, think too too heavily on these things because they're, uh, at least for me, going on expeditions when I was a, a young child was the best way for the family to get together because there's always someone gone. So on special holidays, Christmas, etc., cetera, uh, or occasionally on... on um, on summer breaks, it was uh, an ideal opportunity to see the grandparents, to see my parents, and um, and the crew who I feel uh, were part of the extended family, uh, and um, it, it it was an amazing place. Uh, you know, you don't appreciate things as much as a child, as far as the uniqueness of that situation, as when I reflect back on all the. Uh, the, the pioneers that were in one space, that uh, people who were uh, forging, uh, you know, the, the modern uh, exploration uh, type of, of approaches and, and thought and, and, and learning and everything else. It, it was an amazing place, uh, but it felt like home. And uh, when I got a little bit older, my first jobs uh, when, I, when I was a preteen were scraping the barnacles off the hull, uh, chipping uh, rust off the engine parts, um, you know, uh, doing, painting the rails, all those sorts of things that seemed like menial tasks, but they were extraordinarily important to build an appreciation for what a community is like on a ship and why all jobs are equally important and how we're interdependent on each other, especially on expedition. This was pre-cell phones, pre-everything, uh, you're, you're absolutely uh, interdependent on each other, whether uh, you know someone uh, needs help, uh, if you need to fill in for somebody else because they're off some, uh, on, on, a, on a land team, uh, someone got hurt, uh, how do you deal with that, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So that, that interdependency and highlighting the importance of each and every one on uh, Calypso and, and Alcyon, uh, you know, the... the the, 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 the work from, working from the bottom up was extraordinarily important education. I'd say um, I learned more uh, in the field uh, than I did at, at school. And, and I'm a big proponent of teachers and educators uh, and support them in every way, shape, and form possible. I was the worst possible student out there, so I apologize to my teachers. But um, at the end of the day, I, I learned a lot uh, being on expeditions uh, during those visits. And when did you start moving into ocean exploration as a profession? It's hard to point to because there was never a break. There's never an exact break, right? Um, throughout uh, college, I was going on expeditions. In post-college, I would do internships. But then in between those internships, I'd go off on expeditions with my grandparents and then uh, later with my, my father and my sister. Uh it was always part of the family business, despite uh, the fact that I went into the business world for a while. I 
would imagine that going back into uh, ocean exploration full-time and conservation full-time was probably in my mid to late 20s, uh, starting with a few expeditions, uh, starting with Nat Geo. I was an explorer at large at, the po at that point. And uh, later on with uh, PBS uh, and my father's series, Ocean Adventures, uh, and then CBS, I did uh, the shark show that you mentioned earlier uh, called Mind of a Demon, where I built a shark-shaped submarine. That was uh, a three-year endeavor. It took a long time to execute on that, but that ended up on CBS primetime. Don't skip over that. I want to hear more about Troy the <laughs> shark sub. I was still in my 20s then. Um, yeah, so I guess my fascination with sharks started when um, I had been scuba diving, as, as was mentioned earlier, from a, a young age. So sharks were a natural part of the oceanic background and um, all sorts of species, not the small ones, the large ones, the scary ones, the not so scary ones, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The aha moment for me was when I was seven years old and, or seven or eight years old. And my father had a, a lecture series he was doing with the Princess Cruises, uh, the Pacific Princess Island Princess, Sun Princess, which I think are now retired. But the, the, the point of it is he would bring his family sometimes, my father, uh, my, my mother, my, my sister and I, uh, on these trips when we could. And there was a movie, a shark movie playing in the theater on the, I believe it was the Pacific Princess, uh, the love boat. <laughs> and so being the smart little French child, a very well-behaved French child that I was, I went up to my parents and asked if I could go see the, the shark movie that was playing in the theater. And my parents said, absolutely not. Uh, and uh, you know, being uh, so uh, well-behaved and, and listening to my parents, I snuck in the movie theater anyway. And, and what bewildered me about the show is that it portrayed a, a, an animal in a very different light than what I had seen it. And I was very fascinated and curious, not so scared, but fascinated and curious why this animal that's larger than I've ever seen, you know, probably some 50 feet long, uh, free talking feet, uh, eating boats and scuba divers and buoys and all sorts of things. Uh, I hadn't seen that before and, and I started asking questions to my parents because I was so smart and subsequently got grounded for over a month. But the, the, the point of it is that it, it always stuck in my mind as, as why do people have this concept of these animals automatically trying to come and eat us and kill us and, and destroy us uh, where, wherever and whenever they can when I've seen something very different in the ocean. And I continue to this day seeing something very opposite in the ocean. As a matter of fact, <laughs> the great white shark, as they call it, uh, is usually very scared, uh, very cautious of human beings underwater. Uh, I've been face to face with sharks, even great white sharks for many, many years. And uh, their behavior provided its, uh, you know, visually and everything else is, a, is, is an optimal circumstance, is very, very different than those, these aggressive killing machines that, uh, that Hollywood loves to portray. And so 2004 rolled around, 2003 rolled around, and I started on this adventure of building a shark-shaped submarine to camouflage myself and to move and look and feel like a, like a white shark so that I could mingle with them um, as one of them under camouflage. Uh, it, 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 I make, I'm making light of it. I mean, that, that 
in itself technologically, especially in those days, was extraordinarily difficult. To try and make a submarine move like a fish, good luck. <laughs> but we did it. I mean, it was a wet sub, so it made it a little bit easier that way. But beyond that, um, and beyond so the, you, the, the... you were in scuba inside of Troy. I was in a rebreather, actually. Yeah. Right. Uh, so no bubbles, no noise, hydraulics correct. to move the tail and the fins. When everything worked, yeah. <laughs> and I say when everything worked because, you know, we went to a place called Isla Guadalupe, which is uh, 200 nautical miles off of Ensenada, Mexico, which is now a very popular shark diving place. And went diving with uh, Troy, the shark-shaped submarine, uh, almost every day, uh, multiple times a day for four and a half months to learn more about great white sharks. Uh, and uh, unfortunately, technology and, and our limited budgets uh, were such that uh, the, the submarine had challenges probably 50, 60% of the time. But when it did work, uh, it, it, it gave a whole new uh, perspective on what sharks do when we're not around. So it was really interesting. We were able to look at uh, um, the uh, shark language, if you want to call it that, behavior uh, uh, amongst each other, and behavior, of course, with human beings in the water. Uh, this was, we, we, our approach was not to throw chum and have ugly bubbling creatures in a cage, uh, you know, taunting the animals, but to really uh, interact with them in a way that is as natural as possible. What were the interactions that you learned about I mean, was the great white shark language like, you're one sad-looking shark, Troy. What's wrong with you? <laughs> I'm sure there was some of that. There's probably some teasing behind my back. Uh, but, uh, you know, it, it was interesting because when everything was working properly and there were no other divers in the water, uh, you know, looking at hierarchical behavior, you know, matriarchal societies, uh, looking at uh, language distribution, so, so, so talking amongst themselves. And, and by talking amongst themselves, I mean, sharks don't have vocal cords. So we're talking about positioning in the water, uh, uh, gill flaring, eye roll movement, flexing of pectoral fins, you know, so on and so forth, uh, sign language, essentially. Uh, and, and seeing how each uh, shark uh, talks to, to another. Uh, looking at the, the age groups and how they were dispersed amongst each other and how um, white sharks are typically um, loner animals, right? They're not pack animals. And so it was, it was enlightening in so many ways. Uh, and how they reacted to the shark submarine. Uh, it was interesting to see that despite our challenges, uh, in many ways, they, it, it was realistic enough that uh, we were able to elicit a, a language, um, uh, a communications towards the, 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 the submarine, as well as looking at how, because of the size of the submarine and everything else, there was also a, a distancing and a caution um, and, and, a, and a flight path that was very similar to when they're amongst each other. So it was a, a really neat, uh, a, a neat platform despite its challenges. Did you get a sense, like some researchers have said, of, of actual individual personality or individual behavior? Oh, absolutely. Were... Without a doubt. Each, again, it, it's, it's like looking at human beings in a sense that, you know, a, a child has a different way to operate than a teenager, a different way to express themselves, different ways to, to, to be self-assertive, et cetera, et cetera. And the older animals were much more cautious, much uh, lower uh, activity, 
meaning less twitchy. Uh, definitely is curious, but wouldn't um, wouldn't take unnecessary risks. Whereas the young animals, which hadn't learned life's lessons yet, were a bit more inquisitive. A little, uh, would come in closer. Would would take certain risks that the older animals would not. I guess that's why the older animals are still around. A place where we find a lot of white sharks, of course, is in the Monterey Bay National Marine Sanctuary. Uh, mm -hmm. You went on and you, for several years, you did a series with uh, your dad, Jean-Michel, and your sister, Celine, um, on the sanctuaries. You, you traveled together as a family production unit. Um, how did that yep. come about and how did that go? It's, it's an amazing opportunity to see these kind of national parks in the sea. No, it's it's ironic, David. My father just called while we were talking, but um, it, you know we work really well together. And uh, although we have our own separate projects, we we tend to work together uh, whenever we can. And uh, after Mind of a Demon was was uh, broadcast on uh, CBS, actually even during, uh, we started that series called uh, Jean-Michel Cousteau's uh, Ocean Adventures for PBS, and that brought us all over the place from the Amazon where we spent over 11 months to uh, Papua New Guinea, to the Arctic uh, Circle with the Inuits uh, and looking at belugas to, you know, you, you name it. We, we looked at a bunch of things. And one of the two-hour specials was uh, specifically based on the National Marine Sanctuaries of the United States. This is before uh, Hawaii had officially become a national monument. Uh, and so it gave us uh, a real interesting perspective of the value of, of ocean sanctuaries, marine sanctuaries, as well as the misunderstanding by the general public of what that means. Uh, and the, the confusion, understandably, is partly in the rules and regulations that vary wildly from basically no protection uh, or no enforcement to uh, places of high protection, high enforcement, like Monterey Bay, uh, that are beautiful. And, uh, you know, it, it, it brought us to be able to also compare and contrast other national marine sanctuaries in different parts of the world, New Zealand being one of them and, you know, many others. And so what we found, uh, with, almost without exception, is that when you have a national marine sanctuary in a strategically beneficial area uh, that's enforced, that's respected by the general public, uh, there's um, a, a health, uh, a semblance of, of uh, beauty and um, of uh, hope that these sanctuaries breed because they're, uh, they're allowed to function uh, the way nature is supposed to function. And then there's there are also tangible benefits to society by uh, virtue of the fact that there's a spillover effect that's much, much better for the businesses that depend on ocean resources uh, by using the interest that it bears uh, rather than eating away the capital and not having sanctuaries. Yeah, when fish are protected within sanctuaries and they can grow large and be productive, there's a spillover effect. So and they can swim out. You, to can, you can literally see that in a, even a small sanctuary off San Diego where the boundaries of the sanctuary are defined by all the lobster pots. Because inside the sanctuaries, the lobsters grow big and then they crawl out into the pots. Uh, they, they've got boffs, big old fat females, which is you let a fish grow big, it's more productive, more fecund. And, and so, uh, and also just for the sake of, of having those biological reserves like Papahanaumokuakea, Northwest Hawaii, 
where 70% of our corals are. It's extraordinarily important to, to have that. And, and the Hawaii uh, monument is, is uh, a, a fantastic example of what human beings can do if they put their minds to it. Uh, you, you mentioned lobster pots. So there's another National Marine Sanctuary in the Florida Keys, which unfortunately is not protected the way it is on the West Coast. And uh, I spent uh, several days uh, in one of my uh, programs for the Ocean Learning Center cleaning up lobster pots in the National Marine Sanctuary of the Florida Keys. They lay out about 3 million lobster pots every year and lose about 10% of them every year. Uh, so there's a lot of unfortunate uh, ghost netting or ghost potting out there that uh, needs to be cleaned up. I want to hear about your time in Aquarius. And I know that your dad spent 30 days and you kind of Granddad. one more, excuse me, and uh, yeah, we really wanted to know what your life was like spending that amount of time underwater, and what you know what some of the hardest parts were. About yeah. yeah. So well, and and to David's point, uh, you know, when I was a teenager, uh, the Florida Keys was a beautiful place. Uh, there were coral everywhere; it was gorgeous. And, and coming back these days, unfortunately, you see the contrast of what happens, uh, mainly due to human impact. Uh, and and Aquarius is sitting not only within the Florida Keys Sanctuary, but also within Penny Camp, which is a protected area, uh, a legitimately protected area. Uh, and within that, there's a thousand uh, foot radius around Aquarius that is 100 percent, you know, off limits zone only for for Aquarius per personnel and and um, and scientists. And so uh, having heard this, the legends or the stories of my you know, my grandfather's uh, conch shelf series of habitats, conch shelf one, two, and three, uh, especially conch shelf two, which uh, was in the Red Sea for, uh, where they did a mission for 30 days. This was back in the dawn of, of uh, underwater habitats. So really little uh, had been known. And this was back in those days, pushing the limits of uh, our understanding of can human beings live and work underwater for extended periods of time. So mission 31, was a mission that I led where I spent 31 days at Aquarius, the last undersea marine laboratory. As a matter of fact, it's now 36 years old. It's pretty archaic, but it is uh, very unique in the sense that it's the only functioning one still out there. And, you know, back uh, during mission 31, we wanted to see two things. Two, two goals were how much science or w what's the value of this oceanic tool? Right? What, how much science can we do in 31 days? And two, can we use it as a medium to reach out to the world, to show uh, what's happening live from the bottom of the sea? Because one of the assets Aquarius uh, has and had was uh, being able to connect live from the bottom of the sea. So despite being nine miles offshore and 60, 60 feet down, it's actually 70 feet down, but the air water interface is at... Uh, 53 feet. That's the moon pool you come up through to enter it. The moon pool is our front door, essentially, except it's not on the front, it's on the bottom. <laughs> it's an opening. Uh, it's more like a, a, a stairway to heaven, so to speak. Uh, and, and you literally, you don your gear when you're inside Aquarius and you step down into the ocean and you go off into the wild. And that's really amazing as far as a tool, because one of the biggest frustrations of a scuba diver, as, as, as you might appreciate, is the limit of time at the bottom. 
right? Just when things start getting interesting, just when you start filming really interesting stuff, it's time to go back to the surface. You know, you, you, you don't want to start accruing decompression obligations or you're running out of air or whatever. And I always found that uh, extraordinarily disappointing not to be able to see the conclusion of what that soap opera uh, that's unfolding before your eyes is, is doing. Well, an underwater habitat allows you to be in saturation, meaning at equilibrium with your outside world, and go out in that water column, uh, I'll call it indefinitely, obviously, you get tired, you, you get thirsty, you have to go to the bathroom and all that, but... Uh, Many hours a day. You could do, well, you know, we clocked in anywhere from 8 to 12 hours a day of scuba diving, each and every one of us, uh, for 31 days. Uh, so it, it, it gave us the ability, just to give some, some context here, to do over three years worth of scientific research in those 31 days, as opposed to being stationed on the surface on a research vessel, doing the same things. How many of you were on board that rather tight compartment I visited? It's, uh, yeah, it's... so so Aquarius is about the size of a school bus, and that's actually uh, over glorifying it. Uh, it's it's a very cozy space uh, where you're putting six people for the length of time of the mission. Uh, so for us, 31 days, and you're bringing in you know foodstuffs and 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 everything that you need for those 31 days. So it's, it gets tight very quickly, but the the idea of it's really more as a way station while you're out in the water column. Uh, to, to get some rest, to eat something, to, to do all your dry communications and, and, and work. But really the fun part is being out in the water. And what I loved about what you did, you communicated with school kids. And I know I was working with Ocean First Institute together and we had, oh my gosh, I don't know how many kids from Colorado talking with you. And you were able to share your experience and the kids were incomplete all and so i love that part of the the mission where you really are educating youth and getting them excited about the the ocean and hopefully inspiring them to want to do some underwater activities as well well that's yeah uh, uh, vicky that's a great point that was our second part of our mission so we had two goals second was outreach uh we you know that was a complete um mystery to us as, as to, you know, would we get any traction in the press? Would we be able to reach out to any schools? Thanks to, you know, Skype in the classroom and, and, and our partners and everything else, we were able to reach over 100,000 students live from the bottom of the sea during those 31 days. And talking to kids in China, talking to a 5,000 person group under the blue whale in, in New York City, to a, 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 a group of school kids in Chile, to, you know, even some kids in Antarctica that were visiting a science base. Wow. We were able to connect with them live to show them the boom of a Goliath group or to show them the edutronic camera that shoots, you know, 10,000 frames a second to, to really get them enticed and curious about the undersea world. We, we were able to reach, you know, I, I was surprised, but the media really got excited and wanted, I, I did weather channel uh, uh, interviews underwater to tell them what the weather's like underwater to, you know, to, uh, to, to doing all sorts of art, you know, being in all sorts of articles. And, and, and it was really a blessing and I feel very humbled by it, but we were able to get over 34 billion unique media impressions during those 31 Whoa. days. And, and that shows the power uh, of the ocean when you use the right tools under the right circumstances.
So that leads me into Proteus. <laughs> <laughs> I, fig I figured we were going to talk about Proteus at some point, but <laughs> yes, so, I mean, yeah. wow. Well, was it just too cramped in Aquarius? Is that what inspired Proteus? <laughs> that's that's exactly right. Yeah, too cramped, and the and the food was awful. Uh, so you know, but yeah, l let me clarify something as well. You know, even though we were just six people inside Aquarius, um, it's thanks to all of the surface support. You know, including Aquarius Reef Base, which was Mission Control, and that staff, along with the U.S. Navy and our. Um, our university partners at MIT, uh, at FIU, and at Northeastern University, who were on surface coming down and and helping with some of these experiments and all that, and and resupplying us, that we were able to execute Mission Thirty One. Proteus came about because of the experience with Aquarius and the frustrations, right? Uh, the the successes and frustrations, to address. Our needs, our current needs, especially in today's world with, with all the, the, the ills that we face, uh, could, um, we answer the could a underwater platform such as Aquarius be useful? The answer is yes. Now, what is the next iteration of that? What, why do we spend a thousand times more in space exploration and tourism? $200 billion uh, to this day in space tourism. Uh, when we are completely ignoring quite literally our life support system, which is the ocean, which we know so very, very little about. And it stands to reason that this is Pandora's box of discoveries of solutions waiting to be opened. And the only way you can do that is to augment our understanding and our connection, our interconnectivity with our life support system, the ocean. And what better way to do that than to build the International Space Station of the Sea? And I call it Proteus because Proteus is the eldest son of Poseidon. He was the keeper of knowledge and the shepherd of the sea. So I figured that was an eloquent way of, of describing what uh, Proteus is. The coral reef ecosystem in Curaçao is one of only two accruing, uh, naturally occurring coral reefs left in the Caribbean. Uh, gives us an, a very rare opportunity to study and to monitor and to protect and to breed innovation, innovative technologies and techniques to uh, based in, in uh, a marine protected area, a marine park, uh, which we've been given uh, a blessing to do uh, through this underwater International Space Station. Uh, Proteus will be something that many pioneers in the past have, have wanted have dreamed of uh, will be a, will be standing on those uh, the shoulders of those giants and addressing their their frustrations by granting much more space up to ten times the space uh, in Aquarius, being able to cater to uh, three times as many people if we need to, and for indefinite durations. So you're going from like a school bus to an underwater seven forty seven. You're going. <laughs> Well, well, both of those things are vehicles, uh, so they wouldn't exactly be like that, but it'd be a nice, uh, comfortable suburban home. Although it will be more crowded. Uh, you'll have very large extended family staying with you. But right. it does allow I, I, for... I don't have some... a wet lab in my house. <laughs> exactly. There'll be a wet lab, a fully, uh, a fully uh, uh, equipped wet lab, dry lab, a uh, submersible docking station or hangar. Uh, as well as aquanaut deployment and um, uh, an ROV uh, reception and deployment. So, or AUV, sorry, de uh, 
so so there's there's a lot more to it than has ever been afforded underwater researchers before and in in relative comfort so fabian tell us where you are in the process of getting it launched developed and when you invite your first divers to join you well, we're towards the end of phase one right now. We were in pre-phase during COVID. Um, I'm happy to say that despite uh, the challenges that all of us have had uh, in COVID, uh, we're still on schedule. We did our pre-seed round successfully. We're now in our seed round. Uh, in the meantime, we've signed on a, I, I, I'm pretty sure you all might know this, but uh, it's very recent news. We signed on an EPC. Uh, environment uh, and, and um, engineering procurement firm, uh, very uh, prestigious called DRAS, which is an, uh, they're an expert in saturation uh, saturation uh, technologies and vehicles. Uh, they work a lot. They're a European firm. They work a lot with uh, the uh, commercial industry as well as uh, the Navy, the Italian Navy, and so on and so forth. And so we're we're blessed to have them as partners. Uh, we uh, are in the architectural phase right now. So we're looking at the engineering schematics, what the layout is. And uh, we've done our, our uh, benthic uh, mapping uh, last, at the end of last year. So we, we know what the topography is like. And there'll be some really interesting dynamic uh, topography that's uh, an average of a 45 degree slope. So it gives us quite a variety of things to study from, uh, you know, 10, 15 meters, all the way down to uh, over 100 meters beyond, which wasn't afforded at Aquarius because Aquarius is on basically a flat plane. Uh, so that gives us a, 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 a broader reach. And because of the deployment ability of uh, AUVs and, and submersibles, we can also go way beyond that. If everything goes well, if we continue on in our, our, our path the way we have with investors uh, signing on and so on and so forth, uh, we'll be finishing our building and uh, our finishing our, I'm sorry, installation uh, end of 2025. Mm -hmm. And uh, first mission will be executed, uh, hopefully first quarter of 2026. Wow, that's exciting. Yeah. Oceans in crisis, people don't know what the ocean is or contributes in terms of the crucible of life and oxygen on our planet. Well, that's the thing though, right, David? I mean, if we don't know, how can we find solutions? How can we enact solutions? How can we push people to, to being part of the solution? If, if we don't have a finger on the pulse of oceanic health on a day-to-day -day basis, on a minute-by-minute, hour-by-hour, month-by-month basis, people won't, won't be engaged to be part of the solution. So we absolutely need uh, more investment in ocean conservation. And the only way to do that is investing in ocean exploration. Exactly. It's a race between restoration and decimation. It's frustrating to me that we're still talking about the same things 20, 30, 40 years down the road, because we've missed so many opportunities to um, to give back to our future generations what we've taken for granted. And you know, my grandfather's talking about climate change in the 60s, 1960s, uh, and, and the decimation of uh, collapse of ocean uh, biodiversity in the 70s and pollution and so on and so forth, and, and others too. Um, and so I don't forecast that this year is going to be much different than others, except that uh, 
we're now at a point where the general public is starting to get it and starting to put public pressure on our decision makers. So if that pressure is big enough, uh, they might actually uh, do something, meaning not just have you know, paper agreements, but start enforcing some of the, uh, these, uh, these solutions that they're talking about. At the end of the day, it's not, but it's not up to them. I will be very clear, uh, that is passing the buck. If you think as an individual that the, it's their problem, they need to do something, that's not true. It's your problem, you need to do something. It's my problem, I need to do something. We, as a community, are the basis of the problems and we're the basis of where the solutions come from. And we need to be the solution we're asking for. If there were no ocean, we wouldn't exist. The only reason this little oasis in space uh, is capable of catering to all life that we've ever known and the future of our own species is because of ocean. Otherwise, we'd be a lifeless brown rock in space like all the others. And if we're spending $200 billion in uh, space tourism in the next 10 years, then we should sp be spending at least that much in our life support system for a viability of, of our future generations. Yes, no ocean, no us. And with that, Fabian, I just want to thank you on behalf of David and I for joining the Rising Tide Ocean podcast. It is always a delight to talk with you. And maybe you and the sea dogs. Also, yeah, maybe <laughs> Apparently, my, my sea dog is talking too. <laughs> my apologies. <laughs> uh, no worries. We're all in this together. And thank you so much for your optimism. And um, good luck with all of your adventures. We love following you. And we'll talk with you again soon. Have a good one. Thank you both so very much. Can I leave you with one thing that my, sure. my, the most valuable inheritance that my grandfather gave to me and the world, which is summarized in one very simple thing he said, people protect what they love, they love what they understand, and they understand what they're taught. Rising Tide is a production of Blue Frontier, co-hosted by David Helberg and myself, Vicki Nichols-Goldstein, with support from Natasha Benjamin and Ellie Curlow. Rising Tide's editing services and additional technical support is provided by Studio Cape May. The theme song is written and performed by Ethan Kenbark. You can find Rising Tide, the Ocean Podcast at www.bluefront.org or download it from Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Off in the salty ocean, off where the waves roll free The sparkling water rises, then crashes to the sea Out amongst the breakers, you'll have no need to fear It's true, it's the blue frontier Tear, tear, Off in the salty ocean, off to the blue frontier Sparky, come here, buddy. Sparky, there you are. Good boy, Sparky.